Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. On this episode, the first of their mini-series looking at well-being and mental health, Councillor Amina Ali and Henna Shah speak to the Shadow Minister for Sports, Alison McGovern. Hi, Alison. It's great to have you here. Um, we're here with myself and Amina to talk about well-being. Um, so I guess the first thing to ask, Alison, is how are you doing in your brief during the Olympics? It's a great time to do it. Happy because of the Olympics. Love, love the Olympics. I'm an Olympics fan generally. Um, I remember watching the Olympics on the telly a lot when I was a kid. Um, it always felt like a brilliant opportunity to get into sports that you knew absolutely nothing about. And... I really like the gymnastics, don't know anything about it, was rubbish at gymnastics at school, absolutely rubbish, but really like watching other people doing it. And um, yeah, I think it's I think it's good to have the Olympics on the telly because I think it gives people a sense of um, it's the summer and even if it's raining, it's the Olympics on and there's something new every day and you can find out about new sports. I don't know if you saw the um, the climbing for the first time. And I mean, it's pretty impressive. They get up those walls really fast. <laughs> so yeah, never happier than when watching the Olympics. I managed to go in 2012 when it was in London as well. And that was one of the best days of my life. I've been um, watching the Olympics. I think my favourite one, I know you're talking about the gymnastics, is rhythmic gymnastics, just because I like the idea that in theory, I could and should be dancing around very proficiently with ribbons on an international stage but somehow I'm sat here and not doing that and I think that actually leads quite well into what we wanted to talk about this afternoon because obviously there's been quite a few instances I mean a lot more kind of focus on well well-being in general and mental health and particularly that of sports people around the current Olympics I wonder if you have any reflections on that before we started. It's interesting, isn't it, how um, it's almost a surprise to people, even still after all this time, that mental strength and physical strength go hand in hand, that there's a huge interconnection between your physical and mental health. And I think that's really obvious from the Olympics. I think that sports people know that um, where they are 
in terms of their feelings and their emotional connection with their sport is absolutely crucial. Um, as in, you know, as important as as every aspect of of their training. I think people are choosing to be more open about that. And I think that's an incredibly good thing. Um, We could talk for a long time about Simone Biles and the leadership that she has shown in these Olympics. Um, And I use that word specifically. I think it is leadership. Um, I think she's a very important athlete who is, has taken an incredibly crucial role in standing up to some of the um, worst behavior of, um, you know, that we've seen um, in in US gymnastics and who stood up to kind of vile abuse, which I think is really important. But in this Olympics, showing that you can be forthright, honest and clear with the public about what's going on for you mentally as well as physically, I think is really important. And there's a lot of younger athletes who I think will take great heart from that. Um, so for me, the question of well-being is is really just this. It's the intersection between your physical and mental health and how um, you know they can be impacted by each other and how we understand also, to take it one step further, how public policy can and should change to help people have the best physical and mental well-being possible. Thank you, Alison. You made a good point there about public policy. How do you think, or what do you think, we're lacking in this country in terms of, of of that intersection between physical and mental health and public policy. Where to start? I mean, where to be like a lot. <laughs> um, so we've pretty much had 11 years of disinvestment from local governments, which has a massive, massive impact on all of their things that we want to do and be, particularly in the context of, you know, our lives as part of a local community that could improve our well-being. To give a particular example, um, there's a lot of local leisure centres, sports centres that have been at risk or underinvested in. That means that if you're a volunteer running an athletics club, for example, um, or a a swimming organisation or a rugby team or a football club, if you're a volunteer doing that, then you'll have a harder time finding a venue for that activity than you otherwise would. And that might seem like a small thing, but it's that voluntary activity bringing teams together that gives people a sense of community and activity um, that means that they've got somewhere to let off steam, whatever's going on in their day life. And COVID has exacerbated that, but it wasn't the beginning of that. The beginning of that was taking the decision that local authorities would bear the brunt of the Osborne cuts um, back in 2011. Then there's all of the things that we want to do for people's lives at work as well. We know that far too many people are working, you know, two jobs or maybe more on a zero hours contract. That means their income level is uncertain. That gives them extra stress and hassle at work that frankly they could live without. And then that knocks onto family life. Um, And, you know, the, the restriction to shore start, similarly, because of um, cuts that were decided a long time ago, have had has had quite a long-term impact on people's well-being and family life and where they get support from if they need it. So I think that the past decade has pretty much been a perfect storm for people's well-being. And that that not only can change, it must change for the good of our country. And I think... The, the good news is, is that a lot of these things 
um, are known about, they're under, understood. There's a lot of evidence about how um, what might seem like straightforward interventions, for example, making sure that there's a, a good park that's well-maintained that, that you can walk to, you know, these are straightforward interventions, but that can have a really big, big difference um, and really be really, really helpful to a local community and its well-being. And there's a big debate now about sort of sticking to some of the patterns of working at home at the moment. Do you think that might be a way forward in kind of addressing some of the stresses that family life can create around well-being? I think so. But I would say it's got to be flexibility on both sides. So it can't, we can't kind of say, you know, employers can't say to employees, you know, you, you will work from home when I need you to, and you'll work from the office when I need you to, like, no, <laughs> it has to be a collaboration. And I think that, that where you've got that, those behaviors, I think you see better productivity. I think you see people being more creative. I think you see people finding solutions that in the end save businesses money and help, um, the economy run better, but it's got to be a collaboration. And um, I would say this, wouldn't I? I am a trade union member and a Labour MP, but I think one of the ways in which we can make sure that we've got that collaboration and it's not sort of enforced flexibility is by making sure that we've got people being trade union members and that trade union activity is supported. So again, there's some simple changes we could make to help that happen to make it more likely that people have got a support of their trade union at work. Um, and I think that's the way to really tackle some of the, um, not not just some of the kind of stresses that people have in, in their work life, but also to tackle some of the productivity challenges that we have as a country. I think that's a really good point, Alison. Thank you. Um, just leading on from that, I think what you mentioned there about kind of working life and trade unionism is really interesting. I think it kind of builds into a little bit about what I wanted to talk to you about, which is kind of how we analyse the impact of that kind of collaboration and how people feel in their working life on a kind of macro scale. So I know that we've been thinking a little bit about this as a government in Wales with the Future Generations Act. And I know Jacinda Ardern has obviously um, tried to incorporate a measure of it into uh, how they analyse prosperity in New Zealand. But I was wondering if you had any reflections on taking it up to the macro level. I do. I do and, I, and you've mentioned a really good couple of examples there. Um, you know, we know that thinking about public policy um, through the lens of health in its broadest sense is, is a good thing to do partly because our Labour government in Wales does that, but also um, from global examples. And and I would say, in addition, there's lots of um, leaders of, of cities and of councils that, um, because they have responsibility for public health, that take a similar approach. In the end, this is about how you take decisions. So if you put public health and well-being first, what kind of different decisions does that mean that you take? And through every aspect of government, there's opportunities to do better. So um, just to to give an example, um, when I talk to sports colleagues around the country, they often feel like um, they don't get a lot of time and attention from government because 
the amount that government spends on sport is relatively small. But actually, that's completely out of whack with the positive impact that it can have on people's lives. So um, if the government took the decision instead um, to you know, make sure that we were prioritizing people having active lives through the planning system or making sure that um, there were spaces available for people to play sport, then I think we'd see different decisions being made. And that it, it might seem like not the sort of thing that you know, the Treasury should be bothered about because of the um, size of the money involved. But actually, when it comes to the impact in the way that people live their lives, it could be a big thing. So I think that making sure that we mobilise every aspect of public policy is really important. Interestingly enough, um, the green book that the Treasury uses to take decisions has had well-being and public well-being as a priority for some time. But unfortunately, as as we've discussed, um, Tory politicians in Westminster haven't taken it that seriously. So it's it's a well-established thing in in a, as far as the civil service are concerned. What we've lacked is a set of policies, politicians prepared to take decisions on that basis. Thank you. Um, I want to talk to much a bit about poverty. I mean, we know there's a link between poverty and mental health. And we also know that children who live in really poor households suffer mental health quite early, they start showing signs quite early, as young as 11. Can you talk to me a bit about that and and, and what you see, we might mean it's very difficult to come up with a solution, but wonder what, you, what your thoughts are around that kind of uh, facts that we know that exist between poor, poor children and uh, mental health? Yeah, I mean, actually, it's interesting because through um, some of the public health data, we know a lot about the impact um, of um, poverty on people's, you know, health outcomes. Um, there's been a lot of research over a long time on the social determinants um, of health. But for me, the starkest data is actually Sport England's data on sports participation. And there's a 20 percentage point gap bet- between socioeconomic groups. Now, that's quite a broad measure. Um, but it does show that you're less likely to be participating in sporting activity um, if you are less wealthy. And that's a problem because I don't think anybody thinks that, um, you know, sporting talent <laughs> is is less represented um, from people from, from, from less wealthy backgrounds. I don't think anybody thinks that, you know, your chance of participating and having fun should be should be um, on that basis. So we know that we've got a challenge. Sport England as a lottery but body, you know, are very keen on on trying to tackle and to close that gap. But again, what we really lag at the UK level is a, a group of politicians who are determined to do something about it. The gap is also intersectional. So we know that there is um, a, a race and ethnicity dynamic to to participation levels as well. So it's really important that when we think about um, activity that that we look at it through those different aspects. And I would say, again, loop back around to local authorities, because if we want to do something about those gaps and say, you know, there shouldn't be a gap between how likely you are to be playing sport and enjoying life um, or doing other creative activities, frankly, then you have to... Um, have you have to have um an approach that's that's built out of a a local area and that means you know empowering 
people in towns and cities to say, okay, what works for you? In some places, facilities is a big problem. Um, and we know that, you know, people need local facilities that they can easily access. Um, in other places, it's not facilities that's a problem. It's the barrier is, is financial. The barrier is money. Um, so we need to get that financial support right where it needs to be to make sure that we can offer people free or very, very low cost activities. But I would say, don't make those policies from Whitehall or Westminster. Do that from the town hall or the community center and let those um, policies and interventions be, be led by the people from the community that you want to involve and really listen to what will make it work. It's funny, I was, um, sorry, I can wax on of this for hours and do interrupt me, but um, I was playing rugby for the first time quite recently and I have never played rugby. I didn't play a lot of sport growing up actually for, um, you know, for reasons of uh, feeling embarrassed and a whole host, host of other things. But a, a local rugby club in the Wirral asked me if I would go along and do a taster session. And um, I felt like I couldn't say no. And I'm glad I didn't say no because it was very enjoyable, so much so that I went again and I took my friend who grew up watching rugby but not playing rugby. And as Jenny and I were talking to all of these women, some of whom were in their, you know, 20s, but others in their 30s, 40s, um, even uh, even a couple in their 50s, we were asking them what made them go along to rugby for that first time. And so many people said, because I had someone to go with. And that was exactly what had happened to me. You know, I'd brought my, my friend. And we knew that, that in our community, if you get women to take another another woman, that's how you can build up teams get people to bring their friends. And we knew that because we, you know, we know our, we know our pals, we know the people that we've hung out with. And that's, I think, really important. If you want to build well-being, you have to start from the ground up and you have to work with where communities are and not think that you can make this policy from Whitehall. Yeah. Sorry, I'm going to have to talk about housing. We can't talk about mental health and well-being without touching on housing. And during the pandemic, uh, what we found, especially in local authorities, is kids that were already living in really overcrowded homes, um, who were financially struggling, um, were really hit hard. And some young people started experiencing more mental health than they, I mean, they would have done before. So obviously, we know there's a big housing crisis across the UK, but particularly in cities like London. What do you think we can do to make sure that our house building is part of our well-being offer to, 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 to the public? Um, I think this is a really, really important point and there should be no apology ever for talking about housing. It's it's so fundamental. Um, and, you know, if you if if we were to look at some of those clusters where we've got poor health um, and, and particularly mental health, we, we know that it's housing is is one is a big issue. So this is what I mean by, you know, Putting, putting health and well-being in every policy. I think that we're going to do a lot to move forward um, in relation to climate change and planning. But I think a lot of the things that will help there, walking and cycling um, and having accessible housing um, that's, that helps people have a level of fitness, you know, in the place that they live and have some access to green space. I think the two things will go hand in hand. 
So I, the first thing I would say is we should be focused on making sure that local council leaders have got the powers that they need through the planning system to make sure that people have got good quality of housing. Um, I won't talk about the affordability because I think that's a whole other podcast, um, you know, by itself. Um, but what I would say is that um, if if we've got towns and cities that are where you can walk and cycle and where there's green space, I think then the next question is how can we have a permissive approach to make sure that people can use those spaces um, to create opportunities. So like the success of Park Run, I think is a massive testimony to the good that can be done. But I would like to see volunteers empowered and supported across a whole range of activities um, in our parks and green open spaces. Um, I think that if you've got decently resourced local authorities that have that kind of empowering approach to local communities, I think that we can do that. And, you know, the best housing locations that I know have at, have at their heart a community focus that means it's like there's estate fun days happening, there's activities happening. And I think if you can say to sports governing bodies, look, you really need to be working with those groups to make sure that your tester, your tester sessions for um, all the big sports, football, rugby, tennis, athletics are happening, um, you know, not just in some um, location far away that's really difficult to get to, but it's happening on people's estates right there and it's just easy for them to go along to, then I think you'll be successful. And so we need that message to governing bodies. We need local authorities empowered and enabled to help those community groups flourish. And I think then we will really get somewhere. I feel like I didn't quite say enough about housing specifically because I know how challenging it is in places where people just don't have enough space. I think that is an absolutely central message. And if we can make sure that when we get the next Labour government that we have, making sure we've got spaces for children. Yes, of course, the money in their parents' pockets to make sure that they can have a good life, but also the space and the green space outside their door. Then I think that would be a really good quality childhood. And as Keir would say, make our country the best place to grow up in. Yeah, that's really nice. And I really like the community-led approach that actually brought to mind when you were talking about that, um, watching the young BMXers win their silver and gold medals, which I think, is it a fairly new sport? Or I don't think it had been, been shown at the Olympics previously. And it's, I think it's a testament to what the UK is like, that we're really good at rowing and we're really good at BMX. Um, but I think just that and seeing the stories of the young people who kind of were engaged in that community sport and had their own support space. And, you know, this was something that they did all the time near where their house was because there were spaces there to do those things. And now they're at the Olympics and they're winning medals and they're the best at what they do is like a real testament to how those projects can really support people to find what they love in life and actually like make people feel really fulfilled and happy. That's right. And um, BMX, I think I'm right in saying is a, it's a new one at the Olympics. Um, it's either this, this time or, or last time. I can't, just can't remember off the top of my head. Um, and this is what I love about the Olympics, right? It's like, we, we, 
we have a number of very big sports um, in the UK that can dominate the headlines. But I just think it's fascinating watching all of the different sports that people do. So creative. I think, you know, when I watch um, people do something that's so incredible, um, it really makes me feel just like absolutely like amazed at what human beings are capable of. Equally, Emily Campbell, oh my goodness, did you see her lift 161 kilograms, right? If there's anybody listening to this that hasn't seen it, go and watch it right this minute because it is an amazing thing to, to, to know how much she is lifting in that moment is one thing. The look on her face when she realizes she has done it um, and she has held it perfectly um, and that she's going to win an Olympic medal, like, I mean, that will make you happy for days. She's just an absolutely top class athlete. And I think watching that, it does make you feel sort of a sense of um, possibility. And I really like that about sport. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, I wanted to pick up on another thing that you mentioned when you were talking about housing. I think, well, it's the elephant in the room when we talk about most things at the moment but I think probably post-Covid will be the most significant challenge we have to think about and that's thinking about climate and how kind of well well being and health intersects with the kind of world that we will have to see if we're meant to be sustainable and I wondered what your reflections were on that like how do you think this kind of approach supports a green transition do you think they go hand in hand or do you think that like the self-care industry or, you know, will come up kind of against what we're trying to do in in terms of meeting our climate targets? Um, I think they absolutely go hand in hand for like really obvious reasons um, in that um, if, you know, just like the, the, the impact of, green open space on people um, in local areas is really positive. Um, lots of the the things that need to change, you know, can happen in a way that, that help people live healthier lives as well as, um, you know, putting us on a journey towards net zero. I think that there obviously are, I don't want to sound like, you know, all hippie at this point. There obviously are going to be some challenging times. You know, it's, it is it is quite a fundamental change um, to the way that our economy functions, the way our country functions. So there undoubtedly will be um, things that are difficult. But I think that on the whole, um, it, in terms of well-being, I think it I think it could be really good and hopefully open up a lot of opportunities. Um, you know whether that's you know, like new business opportunities for people who've got startup ideas or innovation ideas or um, whether that's like different uses of spaces. I think it could be, I think there could be opportunities as well as things that are challenging. Um, on, I mean, I think the key point though um, is that both in, in the case of climate change and public health and well-being, I think it's about seeing these as underlying principles that whatever decisions we take you know that the that they need to they need to be there whatever policies we're choosing between these are about underlying principles that sit underneath all of our other policy choices and i think um if we get those right then we're more likely to make the right choice
I think that's a really good point. And I think that kind of thinking around reorienting how we see everything is what will be needed if we're going to succeed. Um, and I think there was one last thing I realised uh, there are plenty of other things to talk about, which is that actually, as you were speaking, it kind of brought to mind, and I'm glad that you mentioned Parkrun, because I think Parkrun is the example of something that is the kind of best form of uh, things that make you happy, right? It's free, it's in your local area, you can do it at your own pace. But obviously, we've been seeing kind of a whole industry emerge around what it means to make you well and what it means to make you kind of happy. And that can intersect can, can intersect in kind of, I think, maybe harmful ways. Um, and I sort of wondered what your reflections on it were from like a broader point of view. Do you think this is something we should encourage or do, how, how do you think we move to like, a view of what it means to be well, which is kind of post wellness, if that makes sense. Yeah, I I I think that's a really important question. Um, so one of the things that I often mention when I talk about um well-being is that um this is not like Instagram guff, that this is not like a load of um that kind of often quite celebrity-driven stuff that um it's not it's not really substantial it's not policy choices that's not about you know that's not about how much green space you think people need around them where they live that's not about um you know whether or not people mainly uh have have to drive to work or whether there's there's different ways of of getting to work like I think that we need to be quite clear about that I think that um we've you've we've seen what for example the diet industry and others um, have done in terms of uh, creating um, spaces where people feel pressured or, um, you know, we know how those things can be really negative. And I think um, there's a whole set of questions for me about social media and how we make sure that um, social media, the way that social media operates in our lives um isn't harmful and we're going to have a piece of legislation about that in the autumn where I think that some of those questions will definitely be discussed um, and hopefully we'll be able to legislate to make the the legislative framework better but I also but I also think that you know public health has to be about um, real changes to people's lives and we we we've seen that before whether that's clean air and making sure the air we breathe is 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 clean or whether that's um the way that um you know people have uh understood things like you know the changes that happened happened when we banned smoking in public places you know there are different examples of the way that that public health can be improved and i think that we have to um look at the challenges we face now particularly around mental health and and what that some of the you know, some of the big causes of that are and try and take a public health, a really good public health approach to some of the, the policy questions that we face and not get kind of distracted by some of the, what, as I say, what I think of as the celebrity nonsense. 
actually a little bit about behaviour change because I think what public health sometimes struggles with is behaviour change. I mean, one good example of really where behaviour change has worked is with smoking, as you just mentioned now. People kind of now know smoking isn't good in, you know, because you can only smoke in certain places and all the rest of it. But, for example, in local authority where they've looked at doing livable streets, we've had lots of kickback from residents who don't haven't understood the reason behind livable streets. It's where economics meets uh, the change in the environment for better well-being. People would argue that they're Uber drivers and therefore they need to be able to drive through our streets. They don't care about the argument about, you know, making our cities more, you know, healthier and, and you know, reducing pollution. So what about behaviour change? It's all great to have these policies. But what about behaviour change? How can we deal with that? Well, this is where I would say, you know, learn from learn from those public health campaigns in the past but recognize that we're in a different um situation now um you know think the 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 one that i think is is really interesting in terms of that that behavior change question is this girl cam and um sport england you know recognized along with a number of um organizations that it wasn't just it it wasn't just that people lacked information, women lacked information about um, sport and physical activity, but also there were there were perhaps cultural reasons and, you know, attitude reasons why people didn't want to participate and that there was a massive stigma to women doing sport. So they set about changing that stigma and that has been a successful campaign to a certain extent, because as I was talking about before, we've still got issues on the basis of class. We've still got issues on the basis of, of race and ethnicity and also um, on disability and long-term conditions. So I think that what this girl can showed us is that the, the right message can act on society's assumptions about people and also help people see that, um, that they they are wanted and that they you know that 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 kind of behavior change can be a positive thing for them as well um sometimes when i'm playing football you know we think you know we get a bit muddy or you know whatever or we're there kind of supporting each other and one of my fellow footballers will say to me this is a this girl can moment and i think it's entered that kind of public understanding and that's a great thing that i think that there's a there's a campaign there for women to get involved in sport that's really good. So what I'm really interested in what the lessons we can learn from that are. What are the positive um, social changes that we need to mean that that people do really feel comfortable and they really want to participate. Um, and I know that there's lots of there's lots of expertise and research out there, but as I was saying before, equally, that's got to be community driven as well, because it's, you know, as you were saying, Amina, with about um, those questions about you know, local economy um, and and how things are in particular areas. I think the way to navigate some of that is to try and try and get kind of community understanding and knowledge um, alongside those 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 kind of big overarching um, objectives that we would like to see for the country. Can I just mention something else that's come out recently called racial racist racism trauma? So racism has now been seen as some kind of a mental health trauma in certain certain circles, and lots of people are seeing that the effect of racism in society on individuals can lead to long term trauma and mental health problems. Um, and 
obviously we've seen some of that with some of our sporting um our, our you know um, england team what happened there there was a real kind of backlash of racism there that happened in social media which is now again a place that is also good but could be really bad as well and affect people badly with politicians have been affected by racism through social media and so what would the Labour government look at? I mean, obviously you can't change people's, you know, people could be racist, you can't change that. But do you think in terms of mental health, we are as a society now ready to accept that racism is a form of trauma that can have a long-term effect on people's lives? I think people who are, um, who are the victims of racism or who have experienced racism should be, you know, able to talk about it and describe it just as they feel it and they experience it and, it's important for me to hear that and to listen um on in relation to to football it's why I always say to people listen to what the footballers are saying if you don't understand listen to what the footballers are saying they're articulate people um who can explain their experience and what it's been like just listen to what they're saying and you know for for colleagues in the media I think it's really really important for people to be able to express that and be heard so that we can increase people's knowledge and understanding and, um, and I believe empathy with what um, some sports people have been through. Um, in addition, I think there's a lot of ways in which some of the things that have happened in sport to tackle racism are good, but need to go further. We need a lot more people at senior level um, who are black, who are from uh, ethnic minority or and who understand um, how to make the, the top levels of sport more diverse. We need a lot of work there. And I think some of the things that are happening are good, um, whether it's programs to help people become coaches. Um, but I think that they need to be increased in number. And I think we need to push a bit harder. Because I think it's taken a long time. That's my honest impression. And I think that we need to go further. So I would say, number one, listen to people who've experienced racism and let them be heard. Number two, let's let's go further. Because we're you know, I think that some of the some of the things that we're doing are good. It just it seems to be taking too long for me. I think that's a really good point and I'm glad you brought it up, Amina, because I think it's so, I mean, racism is one element of it, but I think thinking about you've got things like racism, but also when it comes into poverty and when it comes into job insecurity and all those other things, they're all, they're all really interlinked. And I think over the course of COVID, certainly in my experience, I just think back to some work that I was doing and some campaigning and we sort of listed how different elements of COVID would be impacting um, people of colour. And it was, well, it was in every single aspect, right? It's people who are more likely to work zero hours contracts. It's people who are more likely to live in overcrowded accommodation. It's people who are more likely to live in multi-generational households with um, parents and family members who are at, at greater risk and therefore there's one element which is the kind of trauma of experiencing a kind of interpersonal um, 
reaction towards you and who you are but then there's also kind of all those other things that we've already talked about which kind of compound that experience um and that mean it's really sort of important to take it forward and to view things in a holistic way i think sort of last question from me ali i'm not sure if amina has any others but i think you've talked a lot about kind of the local aspect and a little bit about the national aspect of um well, well, the being and what it means and why it's important. Um, but one of the things that really struck me kind of when we talked about the climate crisis and COVID is kind of, and I know this is an area of interest for you, so maybe you'll have a reflection, is kind of what, how we sh- should approach it on a kind of international level. Obviously, um, we've seen the government take what I would say is a very, ideological choice to um, cut the 0.7 to 0.5 and that's called actually a real impact on programs around the world that are supporting some of the most vulnerable people and I wondered whether you had any kind of reflections on how we could approach it on a global scale when we might not have the same kind of levers of influence that we did previously. Oh my goodness so like a lot of things to do with COVID, uh, my first answer is like, well, I wouldn't start from here. <laughs> um, if you wanted to have good relationships and um, proactive and respectful relationships with countries around the world, like I wouldn't start from here. I definitely wouldn't have Boris Johnson be the prime minister. Um, I think that we have not done a thing to promote good and productive relationships around the world. And so I think we need, an, we need a whole new approach, one that starts with recognizing that cooperation is the key to working well um, across you know, different parts of the world, being able to work with communities um, you know, in places where we have a, a long historic relationship um, and where in recent years, you know, I th- I think of lots of countries where DFID has had that strong working relationship in recent years where, you know, that cut in aid is putting that at risk where really diligent DFID civil servants prior to COVID were doing important work, you know, boring things like making sure that countries that historically have been poorer are able to collect taxes properly, you know, particularly from global multinationals and others so that they can make sure that their public services can be funded properly. Those same diligent civil servants could be helping to make sure that we've got vaccine production places um, in countries and regions all around the world, no matter what. Um, And all of that is put at risk by the attitude that's been taken to to the aid budget and to DFID um, by the Tories. So I think that you need to start from a whole different fundamental principle, I think, and that's one of cooperation and understanding that, you know, we sink or swim together in this world. And that that means we have to work together with countries and in a respectful way and not permanently see it as some kind of um, competition. You know, the Olympics is a place where we have sporting, healthy, friendly competition, you know, it when we're working together with countries, we should do so from a principle and spirit of cooperation. And I think you need to start with that principle and then 
do the hard yards actually understand what it is to make make policies that work for different countries and different places so that everybody's got a stake in the outcome which seems to me to be a whole heap of what is going wrong is that is that it's it's permanently you know them and us well actually like in the end that's a fool's errand because you know if it's constantly a battle we'll all lose whereas actually what we need is to say okay what is what is it that um people in different parts of the world need how can we help them and the knowledge that if we understand what they need a little bit more that's a whole group of people who are likely to be potential trade partners in the future who are likely to be you know potential scientific partners in the future look at the way that the vaccines were created with scientific expertise from around the world so start from the principle of cooperation get into the detail fight you know work together and and i think that would be a much better approach but yeah i massively would not start from here is my general take thank you so much Alison. it's been a real pleasure to speak to you i wonder whether you have any last words if not we'll let you get on with your lovely friday in hopefully sunny liverpool south london is not sunny or is east london sadly <laughs> no it's very rainy here very rainy all right great to see you both oh thank you so much Alison. it's great great talking with you and you too mina take care and lovely to be back at it with you hannah that was good thank you so much Alison. take care